0: pray. Father, I feel my own weakness and inability this morning. I know many of us are feeling our own weakness today. we are in need of Your Spirit's power. We are in need of Your Spirit's power to hear Your Word as it is. We are in need of Your Spirit's power to be made new. We are in need of Your Spirit's power to obey Your commands. and we are in need of Your Spirit's power to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are in need today of your Spirit's power. Would you help me, would you help us by your word and by your Spirit be given power. We love you, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight you may or may not be watching a football game. Here's how every single huddle will work for the offense in that game this evening. Coach on the sideline is going to send in a play onto the field to the quarterback when they're on offense. The quarterback, usually the team captain, is going to tell the rest of the team the play. The team will typically do something in unison like clap. They'll all say break together. Then they'll go turn around. They'll walk to the line. They will run the play. Everyone knows their role. Everyone does their job. What you won't have happen, I suspect, in the Super Bowl this evening is a negotiation in the huddle. You will not find a receiver in the huddle saying, I heard you, quarterback, I heard the play Patrick Mahomes, but I really think you ought to throw it deep to me, the wide receiver. Or the tight end budging in, no, 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 this is not a time to go deep. What we need Is a short 10, 15 yard post route to me. You're not going to find the running back going, You guys have lost your minds. If we want to win this game, we need to run it up the middle right now, all the way down the field. You have a negotiation in the huddle trying to decide what is the plan. Those teams who do that in the huddle will be watching from their couches this evening. Sometimes that's what it feels like in the church. We easily get confused about the plan. Confused like a football huddle. What's the plan of the church? What's the plan for the local church? Maybe you would emphasize in your thinking that you would say, I really think the church is mostly about friendship. Church is about finding friends. Maybe you think primarily the church, the plan for the church, is that we should be kind of like a community center, a a service center where we do things to the community around us. Maybe you think the church should be like a hospital and that the priority, everything in the church really should have the priority, that we would be a place like a hospital where there's healing and and feeding and care. Maybe you feel like the priority of the church is that we should be excited. We we should be rallying. We should be in revival mode. We should be big and, and awesome and coming to church should be an exuberant experience every week all the time. Well, each of those purposes, each of those means, they have a sense of truth to them and they all have, in a sense, their place in the plan of God. But they are not the higher plan that has been given to the church. This morning, I want to encourage you, church... To stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. You want to give your sermon a title this morning? uh, Your sermon? I'm preaching. If you want to give your sermon notes a title, I'll preach the sermon. You listen. Just, Just title it, Stick to the Plan. Stick to the plan. I want to encourage you, church, to stick to the plan. And here is the plan that Jesus gives His apostles and therefore the church in Acts 1, 8, and 9. The plan is for Christ to ascend for the Spirit to empower, and for witnesses to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the plan. That's the play that we're running right now. Those are the routes that everyone's running, so to speak. The plan is for Christ to ascend, for the Spirit to empower, for the witnesses to spread the the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's stick to that plan. First, Christ is to ascend. Christ ascends. This is part of the plan. We're going to go out of order and really focus on verse 9 first. That Christ ascended after he had resurrected. I think a lot of people don't know what to think about the resurrection or about the ascension. Unless you were here months ago when uh, Brady preached through the ascension and did my, some of my job for me. A wonderful sermon. Uh, on our website about the Ascension from months ago. To grasp the meaning for us this morning about the Ascension, I want to go to two passages in your Bible. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, and in the New Testament, Mark chapter 14. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. In the New Testament, Mark 14. In your house Bibles, Daniel chapter 7 is on page 744 and 745. Mark is going to be, Mark 14 in your house Bibles is going to be on page 850. Just in case you need clarification, the, the big numbers on those pages we call chapters. The little numbers in front of each sentence we call verses. So we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. So who is Daniel? Why go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet who was given a vision of the throne room of God at a crucial time in Israel's history. God's chosen people, Israel, were in captivity in Babylon. The, the temple where God dwelled and Israel worshiped God in his presence had been destroyed by Babylon. The majority of the people in Israel had been killed by sword, famine, or fire at God's command by Babylon. Those who lived the destruction which God gave His people because of their sin, they were taken into captivity in exile, taken away from Jerusalem into Babylon. It's about as hopeless, it's about as dire as you can get. Ezekiel 37 even compares it to a valley of dead, dry bones. What are you going to do with this? In that time, the prophet Daniel had a three-part vision of kingdoms who were going to successively dominate the earth after Babylon. Persia, Mede, Greece, and then Rome, depending on your interpretation. But Daniel sees a vision of a great competing kingdom with Babylon and all of the world powers in succession after Babylon. Now I want you to listen to Acts 1, 8 and 9, have it on your minds again. Just listen to what Megan read for us. This is what Jesus says to his disciples before he ascended. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, now listen to Daniel's vision. Daniel 7 begins with a vision of four kingdoms, then it begins the next section is a vision of God himself, the ancient of days, and then we have this vision of the son of man, one like a son of man, a man himself in God's throne room. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13-14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man He came to the ancient of days. So this guy who's like a man came to God the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. And to him, to that son of man before the ancient of days, to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will never die, never be destroyed, shall never pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees a vision of Christ before God in heaven. Jesus' ascension, church, was not a disappearance from the scene. He didn't disappear. It wasn't an accident as if, well, we don't know what to do with Jesus, so he's just going to float away while the church does their job. Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven and took his place at the right hand of God as Daniel and other prophets prophesied he would do. Notice Daniel sees that Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. When Jesus ascended, he did so into a cloud that took him. One commentator calls the cloud the transportation vehicle. And uh, my Michael Crosswhite then referred to the cloud as the the God-mobile, just like the Pope has the Pope-mobile. I thought that was a bit blasphemous myself, but you know, that's your friends. But the cloud signifies the presence of God on the earth. A, A cloud is a familiar appearance when God shows up and becomes present among His people. When God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, it was enveloped in A cloud. When the tabernacle and the temple were built and they were established, it was filled with a cloud. God told Aaron to be very careful when they entered into his presence in the cloud, Leviticus 16. Because God was going to be present in the cloud in the Holy of Holies. So when the one priest once a year in Leviticus 16 goes in, be very careful. Because I will be with you in the cloud in the Holy of Holies. And Aaron should have taken that very carefully Because his two sons had died. Because they did not take that very seriously. When Jesus was transfigured in John chapter 17, he was surrounded by a cloud. Now, the cloud is around Jesus Christ when he ascends. It's not an accident. He didn't simply float up into the clouds. A cloud took him out of their sight. His ascension signifies that he's going into the heavenly presence of God. God. That the place of Jesus' ascension was functioning kind of like Mount Sinai in the temple. We go to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verse 61 through 63. We see another reference to Jesus being in the clouds and look and see what it means in its context. Mark 14, Jesus is on trial. He's not yet gone to the cross. He's still on trial. They're wanting to figure out does this man really think that he's God? Does he really think that he's one with God and that he's the Messiah? So they ask him, Mark 16, sorry, Mark 14, verse 61 to 63, they ask Jesus, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God? Are you, are you the one people have kept saying that you are? And Jesus says very clearly, I am. I am. And this is what Jesus says next. And you will see the Son of Man, a favorite term of Jesus for himself, harkening back to Daniel 7. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, how did the high priest respond to this? The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? This man is claiming to be equal to God, to be one with God they concluded that this man with his throne talk and his coming in the clouds of heaven talk is claiming to be one with God as God Himself The ascension functions like the final earthly witness of Jesus' life and ministry that He is both man, the Son of Man, that that He is yet one with God and He reigns over both heaven and earth and Babylon and Persia and Rome and every nation under the earth is under His feet because He has ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. The ascension moment is a moment of great courage for the Christian, not confusion. Imagine you're watching the Super Bowl tonight. I haven't decided if I'm going to watch, I may have to imagine the whole thing. I'm still bitter. Imagine you're watching the Super Bowl, and fourth quarter, you have one minute left, and your team is down by two points. This is the moment. I mean, I'm really hoping that Philadelphia is the one that's behind in the last moment. Let's say they get the ball. They have a sense of destiny. There's one minute left. We have the ball. We're down by two. The whole season, the quarterback comes into the huddle. He looks at the team. They look at him. What's the plan? And then the quarterback just slowly begins to back out from the huddle and just keeps walking off the field and just disappears into the locker room. And the crowd and the team is standing there going, What is he doing? Where did he go? What's the plan? Who's going to run? What is going on? I think that's how a lot of Christians think about the ascension. I mean, here we are. The disciples think this is the time, right? Remember from last, from last passage, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now it's the fourth quarter. Let's go. But where are you going? Like, what is the the plan? Jesus said that we ought to rejoice that He ascended. We ought to be glad that He went to the Father. He did not just disappear, He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, so that He is fulfilling that role to be the Son of Man, to be the ruler and the reigner of all nations and all peoples. Jesus says in John 14, you heard Me say to you that I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved Me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I am. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place you may believe. Jesus wants us to believe and know that He has gone to be with the Father. He didn't just disappear. He ascended. Let me ask you a question this morning. Just a simple question about facts. Do you believe that Christ did ascend? This is a tough question. Christians, we, we believe things that you can only believe by faith. Do you believe that a man ascended, that he was taken by a cloud, that it was part of God's plan, that it actually happened, that he didn't just disappear, that he ascended, and it's something to rejoice over? Christian church, the ascension is Jesus' victory. It's his exaltation. His ascension to the right hand of God says to Babylon, to Greece, to Rome, to every nation, and even to death itself. You guys get under me. Jesus has ascended above every nation, every rule in heaven and on earth. His kingdom is high and everlasting. We need Him to ascend. It's our glory and, and our hope that He ascended to the right hand of the Father, that He is not just a man, but He reigns in heaven with God's authority. Isn't that what Jesus said Matthew 28 when He leaves? All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And where did He go when He ascended? He went to the right hand of the throne of God to take that authority. And so remember what Jesus says to Mary when she recognized Him and she saw Jesus resurrected from the dead in John chapter 20. She recognized Jesus when he heard his voice, but Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. Why? Why would Jesus tell Mary not to cling to him? He says, For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Don't get too attached to me here. I need to ascend. I'm not done. That's the next plan. But instead, Go to my brothers my And say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. That's the plan. As Christians, we're so thankful that Jesus has ascended and now rules and reigns from heaven. Church, do you believe that it happened? Is it good for you? Is it encouraging for you? It is to know that Christ reigns and rules from the right hand of God in heaven. That's what His ascension means to us. It's as much of a fact of the good news that Jesus Died on the cross. As much of a fact that he rose from the dead, it's a fact, a historical fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. This was part of the next part of the plan, which is the spirit empowered witness. Christ ascends, he's taken his place at the right hand of God, he's now ruling his church and has shown he is in authority over all nations. And that ascension is part of the witness of the church. Notice the apostles witnessed the ascension itself. Jesus didn't go ascend on the other side of a mountain and say, y'all just trust me, this is where I'm going. The plan of God is to get the message of salvation to the ends of the earth by spirit-empowered witness who witnessed even his ascension. So when he says witnesses here in this verse, it it first means, in its context, eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus with their eyes. They heard Jesus with their ears. They touched Jesus with their hands. They witnessed the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. They witnessed the ascension. That's part of the criteria for replacing the Apostle Judas later in chapter 1. They're looking for one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us. We need someone, we're going to replace Judas, we need someone who was with us from the moment that Jesus began to, to minister at the baptism of John, until the day who also saw him ascend, who was a witness with us from the beginning to the end. Luke really highlights that the apostles saw the ascension of Christ. Look in Luke 9, or Luke chapter 1, sorry, Acts 1, written by Luke, Acts 1, verse 9 and 10. This is the ascension. Luke says, when he had said these things, Jesus, look, he says it three times. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. And the cloud took him out of their sight. They were watching when this happened. Verse 10. And after he was gone, what does Luke say? While they were gazing into heaven, while they were standing there looking, They've been watching the whole time. He mentions that they were watching three times. It ought to be settled in our hearts as historical fact that Jesus is alive today. That He was dead for our sins. That He raised from the grave. But Jesus did not die and will not die again. He has ascended and He is alive today. Church, if Jesus is not alive right now, every single thing in the Bible falls apart. It's pointless. It's meaningless. Witnessing Jesus ascend is part of the apostolic account. His, his life from birth, from His ministry, to His death and resurrection, all part of the witness of Christ to the point of the ascension. Do you believe it? Do you love it? That Jesus ascended into the cloud, that He did not die. He didn't die again. This is vital to our hope in Christ, that Jesus is alive. That He didn't die somewhere again. Romans 6 verse 8 through 10 speaks about the hopefulness and the meaning of Jesus being alive like this. Now, if we have died with Christ, that is, by spiritual death and by faith with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him, with Christ. We know, and this is what Paul's saying, is the gospel to us. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Isn't that good news to a room full of people who are on the way to dying? We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He ascended past death. He broke through death. For death he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul speaks about Jesus as living in the present tense. The life he lives, he lives to God. He's alive right now. Did Jesus die? Yes. Did Jesus raise from the dead after paying for our sins? Yes. Did Jesus ascend to the right hand of God? Does He live today? Yes. It's good news. But notice, these eyewitnesses are not only eyewitnesses. They're spirit-empowered witnesses. The, the plan is for Christ to ascend and then for His church to his witnesses to be spirit-empowered witnesses. Now, this is, this is a bit strange. Why does the Holy Spirit need to empower eyewitnesses? I mean, part of the whole point of the apostles was that they all saw this with their eyes. His life, His ministry, His resurrection, His ascension. I mean, either you witness something or you don't, right? I mean, either you were there or, or you weren't, right? I don't know if you've ever been in this situation exactly. But it's not always easy to be a witness, is it? It's not always easy to be a witness, perhaps maybe in court. It might not be easy to be a witness in the office when you have to go face your boss and witness, be a witness to something about him or her, which could cause you some hardship if you witness that thing. It could be hard to be a witness if you're a whistleblower at you know, the FBI right now. It can be hard to be witness of some things if, if you're witnessing in court against someone who's in the mafia. You just want to know before you go witness, do they know where I live? Is my family in a safe place? You're going to go witness, it's going to, it's going to cost you. It's not always easy being a witness if the thing that you're witnessing about is going to cost you. The apostles saw it. They were eyewitnesses. But the witness God was giving them to do was going to cost them. As they began to bear witness about Jesus raising from the dead, if they were to do this, if the church were to be witnesses of Jesus Christ without the Spirit of God, it would not make it past Jerusalem. It wouldn't make it to Judea and Samaria, much less the ends of the earth, much less Austin, Texas or next door. They would just fail. They would just cower like they did in the Gospels over and over. The Spirit of God empowers the witness of Christ to spread the news of Christ all over the earth even at the cost of their every earthly comfort and their earthly lives. Immediately, when the 12 eyewitnesses start telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Christ, He's the Davidic king, that He raised from the dead, that He ascended, that He is the ruler, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that He's alive, right now, immediately they all get put in prison. All 12 of them get put in prison immediately. Next chapter. Later, Stephen is killed in Acts 7, James is killed in Acts 12. Paul is imprisoned at the end of Acts. Later, we learn Peter gets crucified upside down. And the second generation of disciples, Ignatius, was thrown to the lions. Polycarp, the disciple of the apostle John. It says in in history, it says, The presence of the proconsul holding court at Smyrna, and all the people crying out against him, Polycarp, in the amphitheater, burned him. That was John's disciple. And on and on and on and on and on through history until we get to today. It takes boldness to be a witness to the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus to the world. The world doesn't like it. They don't want to hear it. It's judgment first. It's judgment before it's gospel to know that there's a king who rules over every nation. who rules your judgment and your eternity in his hands. Because he stands before God. Without the boldness of the Spirit... The witness never gets to the ends of the earth. Church, let me just encourage you. If we're going to stick to the plan, we've got to pray for boldness. We've got to pray for boldness. Ask God to make us bold. And I want to encourage you, church, don't live in unnecessary guilt you lack boldness. God's plan was never to go find a bunch of strong, beautiful, willing people to accomplish his plan. God basically, to put this in context of Texas, God basically went to East Texas and said, give me 11 rednecks and a tax collector and let's go accomplish a mission. I mean, what are these guys going to do? Uneducated? Fishermen? Low life? Poor? What are they going to do? I mean, who are they going to bother in the world? There's nothing really lovely about us that God would choose us to save us and make us witnesses to the gospel, to the ends of the earth. God was never really counting on their strength. It's not really counting on your strength. It's not really counting on their boldness or your boldness. It's the spirit of God which is accomplishing the plan of God to spread the news of the Son of God to the ends of earth in order to save the people of God. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit gives us boldness. We have the example of the apostles praying for boldness in chapter four. They're imprisoned. And here's what they're told. They're told the same thing we're being told today. Same thing we're being told at work. Same thing we're being told on our street. Same thing we're being told in the news. Stop talking about Jesus. I mean, you could talk about him, but as long as he's that nice Jesus that loves everyone, doesn't have any expectations, no commands, you know, the ruler who ascended into the heavens and is the, the king of all things, and we owe him our allegiance, I mean, just don't talk, that's, that's not the Jesus we're really wanting to talk about. Don't talk about that Jesus. Stop saying that name. Stop saying that he raised from the dead. Stop saying that he ascended into heaven. Stop saying that his name is the only way to salvation. If the apostles agree, yeah, yeah, ooh, mm, I don't. Mm. Guys, we shouldn't be doing this. This is too much. The gospel never goes past Jerusalem. What happens though? They pray for boldness, and God gives them boldness. Look in your Bibles, Acts chapter four, a couple chapters to to the right in Acts. They're in prison. And here's what they pray in response to being put in prison and being told, quit talking about Jesus. Here's what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. We've been threatened. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Keep giving us boldness. We're, we're not bold, would you make us bold? while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed to the name of your holy servant Jesus? And here's what happens: When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happened? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Spirit empowers the witnesses with the boldness to go preach the gospel. When the church prays for boldness, the response is to give the church boldness through the Spirit of God. It's not a surprise to God that we're chicken. It was the plan of God to embolden the church, much of uneducated people like me and like you, to go share the gospel. Let me just ask you have you become a coward? Have you just become a coward? Is that, is that just really what's going on in church? It could be all kinds of things that keep us from sharing the gospel with lost people. It could be lack of love. It could be all kinds of things. But one thing could be we just, we just let ourselves become cowards. Maybe there was a chance to tell someone about Jesus, invite someone to church, do, do something, say something, ask someone a spiritual question, but he you just, you just kept going. You just decided not to do that. Maybe that happened to you this last week. That's happened to me this year already. More than once. Other times I've taken an opportunity to have a conversation. Other times I haven't. Pray for the Holy Spirit. To give power. I'm afraid to talk to your barber. Or afraid to talk to your neighbor. Afraid to talk to your coworker Or your family member. If you're, are you afraid? Just admit, God, I'm afraid on my own. God, I'm not very bold on my own. Pray for God to give us boldness. When you go to your life groups this week, pray that God would give your other life group members boldness. Pray for each other that God would give us as a church boldness. Is God calling you to missions or China or Iran or one of the other 7,400 unreached people groups in the world? You ever felt an urge for missions? You ever felt an urge, a, a burden for the people in the world who have never heard about Jesus. The people who are still at the ends of the earth. The Joshua Project is a company online that tracks unreached people groups. That's where that number comes from. Their number is 7,400 They define an unreached people group as a group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize that people group, without outside assistance. So, like Saudi Arabia, for example, there may be a couple Christians in there somewhere, but there's no church, and there's no help, and there's no Bibles. It's not on the shelf for people to buy and have access to. You want to go? There's a a church in Saudi Arabia right now. It's on an oil compound. It's kind of protected. It's on its own little space. Maybe you can take your tech job to Saudi Arabia. Maybe you can take your retirement money to Saudi Arabia. God's not annoyed when you have to come to Him and pray for boldness. He's not annoyed by that. God's not disappointed with your lack of boldness. That's why He picked us. He loves it. I mean, over and over and over in the Old Testament, God pairs down Israel when they're their strongest. they will say, well, we're going to go out in battle. Let's send less of you guys so that you all remember it was me that saved you. It's not you guys. As an earthly father, sometimes I get frustrated with my kids when they ask for help. They come and ask for help something that I just feel like they should be able to do. And maybe sometimes they should. Maybe sometimes they need, they need help. How many times is my response as an early father? Would you just do it? Just do it. I ask you to do it. just go do it. God never gets upset when someone comes to ask him to open the jar or help mow the yard or do anything that he's asked us to do that's good. He is glorified when his power accomplishes his plan. He gets glory when His Spirit gives boldness to His witnesses to the end of the earth. They notice. The world notices. That's strange. It's weird. People don't do that. People don't move to closed countries just to share the gospel. People don't tell the gospel over and over at work even when they're told not to. People don't talk about Jesus to their neighbors or have people over to fellowships where they sing songs. People don't do those things. Where does that come from? It glorifies God to say it's something from God that's in this people. Ask God for it. Only by spirit-empowered witness could the gospel ever get out of Jerusalem prison, much less all the way to the ends of the earth. Don't let Satan whisper into your ear how guilty you ought to be and how weak and how poor you ought to be and what a pitiful Christian you are. You have no boldness. You're you're such a terrible evangelist. You're, You're so weak and you're such a coward. You take those words to God and confess, I'm a coward. I'm weak. My love is low. Give me boldness, God. You empower me. Please, by Your Spirit, that while they continue to threaten and my comfort is at stake, I will speak the gospel. Maybe this week you speak to the gospel for the first time to someone that you never have before. Because you're bold. Because you prayed. And you asked God to give you boldness. God's plan, our commission, is for Jesus to ascend and rule and reign for heaven for us to be empowered by His Spirit to preach the gospel Last piece, last part of the plan, to the ends of the earth. Spirit-empowered witnesses of the ascended King to the end of the earth. Jesus gave the apostles the map for the plan of God. You know, I, I love, uh, it's just wonderfully encouraging to me. I watch football, to go back to football again, and... They, they just call out these words, Blue 42, Omaha, and all these, and everyone just knows where to go. We're given a map here from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, at first glance, it might sound like kind of a generic list, but it's actually packed with meaning. A few things to notice about this list and the order of these places. There's an ethnic progression from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth transcends from Jews to Jews mixed with other nations in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which would include all people. There's a political progression as well. From the king who's in Jerusalem all the way to the king of Rome is what happens in the book of Acts. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, there's also a prophetic fulfillment in there. In the list, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Judea and Samaria are a couple They're connected as a group with and in between them. There's some history there to Judea and Samaria. After the nation of Israel was split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, the northern area was overcome by the Assyrians. Intermarriages led to mixed Jew-Gentile families. Jesus speaks of the gospel going to Judea and Samaria now as a unit, that northern area becoming Samaria where the Samaritans are, those half-breeds is what they would kind of call them. That's what Samaritan meant. Now Jesus speaks of the gospel going to Judea and Samaria as a unit, both grammatically and theologically. When the divided kingdom was at its absolute lowest, Ezekiel prophesied this, one king shall be king over them all, referring to the north and south, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David, it's a reference to Jesus in the Old Testament, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And this geographical progression also becomes the table of contents for the book of Acts. The right? book of Acts isn't just happenstance. and We're just kind of going all over the, the map like we're you know, using Apple Maps or something. That's been my experience with Apple Maps. Where do the apostles, where do they start preaching? Where do they start spreading the good news? In Jerusalem. In the temple. In Jerusalem. All twelve are there in Solomon's porch in Jerusalem. They're all preaching. Where does the gospel go next? Well, Acts tells us that it's following the Acts 1 8 uh, progression. Look in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 7, Stephen gives a really long speech about Jesus being the Christ that the Jews and the Pharisees had killed. But look what happened in Acts 8, 1 after Stephen's death. Acts 8, 1 and Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's execution, back in chapter 7. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, that first geographic location. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Where was everyone scattered? Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They stayed back in Jerusalem. They're pretty much in Jerusalem through the rest of the book. Jesus is that one shepherd king over Judea and Samaria, reuniting the broken kingdoms of Israel. Jesus is also that that one person that makes a people and a nations united. Here in the church we have Eagles fans and Cowboys fans. I mean you want to talk about unity that only Christ can accomplish. We have various races, colors, languages, ethnicities, church backgrounds, poor, rich, young, old, weird. If you don't know who the weird one is, you're them. The one unifier that we have, the one unifier that we have is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died for the sins of all people. All peoples can have peace with God together because our unity is built on the foundation of peace with God through Christ. Just like the unity between Judea and Samaria, between Judah and Israel. All peoples can have peace with God built on the foundation of Jerusalem Going out to the ends of the earth. The word Jerusalem is likely a compound noun between two Jewish words. Yara for pillar and shalom for peace. Jerusalem literally means pillar or foundation of peace. So God's plan begins with Jerusalem. Why? Because God made peace with all mankind to the ends of the world there. God offers me and you peace through what He did in Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the foundation of peace. Your peace with God starts not with where you are, trying to get back to where God is or where heaven is. It starts with heaven's Son coming down to earth and dying for you in Jerusalem. And because Jesus died there in God's place, that holy city, David's city, where the temple was, we can have peace with God. Colossians says of Jesus on the cross in Jerusalem, for in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness, like in the temple, pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself. He he makes peace, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is what God has done through Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Made peace. So Jerusalem geographically is the foundation of peace. Theologically, what starts there with Jesus on the cross and resurrected from the grave and ascending, that's the place of our peace. If you want to be at peace with God, you don't have to get better. Simply confess your sins and put your faith in Jesus who was crucified in your place. Trust that He rose from the dead, that He ascended to God's right hand the good news of your peace the good news that is going out to the ends of the earth is that God made a foundation for peace in Jerusalem hear the good news God's son in your place for your peace with God and the whole plan is for the witnesses empowered by the spirit to just take that news to the ends of the earth for the peace that God afforded in Jerusalem to be preached and taught and shown to every nation on the earth. That whole plan should start to sound very familiar. In the very beginning of the Bible, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. And he commanded them to multiply and fill the whole earth. Now, starting in the new garden from the temple, which was decorated in the garden theme are the apostles and the followers of Jesus there to spread the good news that Jesus has now brought peace with God in this new creation. And that new creation, joy and peace, that shalom, is to spread to the ends of the earth. All nations hearing about their peace with God because God's Son died on the cross for them couple of implications for us, a few implications for us. Boldly go anywhere with the witness of Jesus Christ's life and death for sinners. Go anywhere. Talk to anybody. This is why we don't ask Iran's permission to take the gospel to Iran. Jesus ascended above all nations, above Rome, above Greece, above America. We don't ask people's permission to go tell the nations the gospel because we've been commissioned by the king who sits at the right hand of God. We don't have to wait around until someone tells us it's okay to sneak bags and bags of Bibles into Laos and China and Indonesia. You can honor your boss and your fellow employees, but you don't have to wait for permission to tell someone else about Jesus. You have the commission to fill the earth, the whole earth, With the good news of Jesus Christ, we prayed for Azerbaijan this morning. Do you have permission to go there? You have the authority to go there. The government of Azerbaijan might tell you you cannot come here and tell people about Jesus. Jesus says, "Yes, you can." That's the whole plan. That's my plan. Christians, stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. There's a lot of things that the church is about. There's a lot of things that our church is about. Projects that we have, initiatives that we might take, ways that we serve the community. All kinds of things. Counseling, all kinds of teachings and trainings that that we might endeavor. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by persecution. Don't get distracted by opportunity. Don't get distracted by the world trying to define for us what the church is. The plan is for Christ to ascend, for the Spirit to empower witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's the plan. That's the plan for your life. That's a plan for our church. Kevin DeYoung says it like this in his book, What is the Mission of God? I think is what it's called. It's a wonderful book. A little lengthy, but it's really good. He says, if you're looking for a picture of the early church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal, and strategies to serve in Jesus' name, you won't find them in the book of Acts. But if you're looking for preaching and teaching and the centrality of the word, Acts is your book. Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan when you get onto your social media this week. That's the plan. We're we're to be witnesses in the world. When you get on social media this week, you are a witness. Will you be a bold, spirit-empowered witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ by by your life and your words? Or are you preaching some other gospel? Have you been confused lately, bored, distracted, Maybe you've given your neighbors and your co-workers plenty of space, not bothering them too much. Is that the plan? Is that our plan? Stick to the plan. Church, repent from God, or from comfort being our God. God comforts us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. We'll see this through the book of Acts even. But if comfort itself is our plan, then when we suffer for the glory of God our purpose is going to be crushed. And we're going to be disillusioned. The plan is going to be accomplished through suffering and conflict over and over and over and over. Pretty much what happens through Acts is, is this. Jesus gives the church the commission. They immediately bump into political, religious, financial, governmental, and inward division challenges. And the question is just the same on every page. Are we going to stick to the plan when we face all of these Challenges. That's what we're going to be looking at in the chapters to come in the book of Acts. As the gospel goes past Jerusalem, past Judea and Samaria, it starts to make its way through Greece and then Rome. Here's, here's what Paul wrote to the church in the Greek city of Thessalonica about his experience in Philippi, way past the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Paul says very simply, though we had already suffered, he's telling the church in Thessalonica, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We had a terrible time in Thessalonica. Terrible conversations there. Divided. It was, it was awful in Philippi. Excuse me. But then we had boldness and we kept coming through the midst of much conflict to you. So maybe you failed. Maybe you've had a tough time. Maybe you've had some bad conversations. Keep going. Keep going. You might just be moving from Philippi to Thessalonica and you might find some fruit in the next city, the next conversation, the next neighbor. Stick to the plan. Plan doesn't change. When you bring home a baby from the hospital, stick to the plan. The day that your daughter graduates from high school, now what do we do? Now what's our life about? Stick to the plan. The day that you retire and drive home from work for the very last time, now what's your plan? Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. This is God's plan. The day that you get a paycheck every single month and you decide, what am I going to do with this? Stick to the plan. Support the ministry of the gospel financially through your local church and through missions. What's the plan for your life? Maybe instead of blaming God for not getting on board with your plan for your life, consider God's plan for His witnesses and for us. So often in counseling, so often in my own life, so often in me, I find that my frustrations, my headaches, my disillusionment, My discouragement comes not from me trying to achieve the plan of God through the Spirit of God, but comes from me having adopted some other plan. The quarterback said, this is the play that we're going to run, and I ran a different route. Look at your life. Look at your frustration. Look at your troubles and see, are these the troubles because of the plan or have I left the plan? The plan is not just one more thing to do. This is the meaning of everything we do. This plan is not just something you add on to the weekends or Saturday morning or Thursday night. This is the plan for the church under which everything is umbrella. The church does a lot of things, but all things are merely supportive of that one plan. The witness of the ascended Christ to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit. Stick to the plan. Mentioned earlier, there's those disciples, Ignatius, there were Polycarp, Peter, John. Most of the apostles have pretty clear evidence that they were killed for their faith. One of those second generation disciples was Ignatius, the man who was torn apart by the lions. Here's how he asked the church to pray for him. He said, only request, only pray in my behalf, both inward and outward strength. That I I may not only speak, but truly will. And that I, I may not only merely be called a Christian, but really be found to be one. Let fire in the cross, let crowds and wild beasts, let tearings and breakings and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shattering of the whole body, let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me, only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Let us pray for this inward and outward strength. While we come and we just confess our our disobedience, we confess our our weakness, and we confess often our disobedience to the Great Commission because we find ourselves in places and times of cowardice in our hearts. Would you embolden us by the Spirit when we cross the threshold into the workplace this week, help us be praying for the power of the Spirit. When we walk back into our front door at home and we have a family to minister to, help us in that moment to pray for the boldness of the Spirit. When we walk out this door today into our parking lot and we get in our cars and we go back to our homes, help us to leave praying for power of the Holy Spirit. As we go to bed tonight and we look at our calendar for the week and we look at our schedule and we we think about what's coming up, Father, help us stop then Remind us to stop and pray for boldness. We confess our great, great need of your boldness to accomplish your plan to spread the news of your Son to the ends of the earth. If you might call any of us, Father, to any, any participation in the commission, whether it is here in Austin, in our family, or in Azerbaijan, or Saudi Arabia, or Russia, Would you help us by boldness from heaven say yes? We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.